right, welcome to this week's Experience Podcast here at the Seattle Times. Yes, two podcasts in one week. It's pretty amazing. The efficiency that we are showing right now is is, um, is something that we haven't seen before. I think it helps because it's really cold outside and I don't want to go out and do anything. So I figured we'd add another podcast. This is going to be a little different podcast. This is the this is going to be like a pop-up prospect podcast. Try to say that three times fast. Uh, for a story I was doing for the Seattle Times paper, uh, I, I wanted to just kind of take a look at the farm system and see where it ranked in comparison to maybe a year ago or even before the trades um, that Jerry DePoto made, the, all five of them this offseason. So I called up some guys from um, uh, the prospect ranking publications. I guess not really ranking publications, but like prospect publications. Baseball America, which is always well known about kind of evaluating and ranking prospect talent. And then Fangraphs uh, as well, which is an underrated and I think a very useful prospect place to go to. It's a little different look, but uh, Eric Longenhagen and Kylie McDaniel over there do a really nice job. And so I wanted to get their input as well, just a little different perspective. Um, they both sites uh, had the Mariners ranked last in their organizational talent rankings um, in terms of the farm system last year. Uh, we wrote some stories on it. Obviously, if you remember, Jerry Depoto was not pleased about us asking him about that. Him and Andy McKay got really defensive at their pre-spring luncheon, uh, saying everybody's a prospect and all this stuff. It was it was fine. They knew they were going to get asked about it. They came prepared and, and, and all that good stuff. So uh, I figured, you know, I knew that they wouldn't be 30th anymore. Uh, just given, you know, you add Justice Sheffield, you add Jerry Kalinick, you add um, Justin Dunn, you add all these guys that are uh, top top prospects for other organizations that's going to fill out your your prospect cachet and move you up in the ranking so i get to uh i asked about where they would fit jerry depoto kind of mentioned the other day on a conference call uh, that he felt like the team was maybe you know top five top ten these guys don't think so but um it's just kind of a it's kind of just a look at that so i recorded uh, each of their interviews um I think on Thursday, Wednesday and Thursday, it's now Friday morning when I'm, I'm recording this lead in here, but uh, I just uh, think it'll be, a, it's just a fun, different conversation about prospects and stuff like that, And because, you know, I, I don't really get to see them all the time, I don't go watch these guys, I don't really track them, and I certainly don't track uh, prospects from other organizations, I would say, like, you know, I, I knew who Justice Sheffield and Justin Dunn were, Jared Clinic, but, I mean, I wasn't reading up on them all off season, you know, or all last season, trying to see how good they were. Cause I didn't, you know, they weren't part of the Mariners farm system. I'm keeping track of the other ones. And that's another part of the conversation that we have with both guys. We talk about some of the current guys in, in the system that were here before. So Evan White, uh, Julio Rodriguez, Kyle Lewis, they have some thoughts on them as well. Cause they've seen them play recently as well. So I hope you enjoy this week's or this extra little podcast. I, th I think it's pretty interesting. Uh, different voices. Larry will probably be jealous of them too, but we'll have Larry on next week. I'm flying to Vegas on Saturday for the winter meetings. We'll do a podcast from there, I hope, depending on the logistics and all the, the Wi-Fi setup and everything. But other than that, let's get to this week's show. We'll first do our conversation with Kyle Glazer of Baseball America and then move to Eric Long and Hagen of Fangrass after that.
Okay, I'm excited to have this next guest on. Uh, he and I have talked off and on for the last couple of years. You know, when do we meet? Oh man, it's been a while. I mean, I think when I was on the Padres beat, we uh, we we talked a little bit uh, back in like 2015 or so. But okay. I, I want to say it was around there. Okay, so this is Kyle Glazer from Baseball America. He uh, he he's my kind of prospect guy that I go to when I have to do big picture of organizational rankings. Uh, you know where the farm system sits and everything. I guess maybe that's where we start. Um, how does th- for a lot of people see these rankings and, and, and the farm system rankings, the prospect rankings, how do you guys go about accumulating all this information and putting it into place? Months and months and months of consistent discussions with scouts and managers from all across the game. Uh, you know, our process compiling, uh, you know, our process, we start, you know, getting scouting reports on guys from February and spring training. And throughout the year, we're constantly talking, you know, going out and seeing guys, talking to uh, everyone from front office officials and directors to, you know, the scouts on the ground. Um, Then in the process of doing like our league top player rankings, we're talking to managers all over baseball. So by the time it comes time to put together a, a final system ranking, you know, in October, November, I mean, we've normally put hundreds of man hours into each organization and even though you'll see 30 names ranked, we normally have, you know, good in-depth scouting info on, you know, anywhere from, you know, 60 to 80 to maybe even a hundred guys in in a system. So it's a long drawn out process. It's not something we just start doing uh, in October when it's time to rank guys. It's, it's a years long thing. And that's why for the most part, VA has been able to uh, be right more than wrong over the years and kind of be what we've become. We talked about, uh, I think last year at the winter meetings, you kind of gave me the heads up. I think that the Mariners were going to be last in the uh, organizational rankings throughout baseball. How does that, how do you guys generate those rankings? I mean, is there, I don't think, is there not a point system or anything like that, but how do you, how do you generate that? Sure. So when you open up your Baseball America prospect handbooks, you'll see grades on every player and a risk with those grades. And just as uh, Major League Scouts use the scouting scale that ranges from 20 to 80, 80 being, you know, a Hall of Famer to 20 being someone who's a minor leaguer who has no business sniffing the major leagues. um, Every player in the handbook is assigned a grade based on, again, what our discussions with scouts tell us, how they see these players and what their futures are going to be. And at the end of the day, we, you know, it's, you know, straight math, add up, you know, the averages and the highest numbers, obviously, you know, a system that has, you know, a guy who's a 70 and two sixties and a bunch of fifties, uh, the average is going to be higher than a system that has a bunch of, you know, forties and fifties. And, uh, when push came to shove last year and we averaged out what scouts saw the talent level of all the different systems across baseball, the Mariners had that lowest average number. And, uh, it was by a, a a reasonable margin too. It wasn't like it was neck and neck with anyone to be last. Uh, before we get to all the trades that the Mariners made, uh, any thoughts on maybe the, the the Mariners' top few prospects that they had before all this went down? Eben White, Kyle Lewis, uh, Julio Rodriguez. You got any thoughts on those guys? Yeah, Evan White was was someone who really impressed me this year. I, I saw him a good bit uh, with high class A Modesto. I had seen him earlier uh, playing for Team USA. He was on the collegiate national team uh, in 2016, and he really stood out on a team that featured a lot of guys who were more maybe high profile, like Brendan McKay, Seth Beer. Uh, he stood out there, and then you saw him this year in Modesto. 
this guy playing first base, it's beautiful to watch. This is gold level, gold glove level defense at first base. And not a guy who's going to, you know, win one. I mean, we're talking about a potential perennial gold glove first baseman. Scoops, stretches, you know, diving plays, turning the 363. It's almost like watching a ballet. It's uh, it's pretty pretty fun to watch if you're a baseball purist. And then at the plate, it's just a really solid, you know, consistent line drive, gap to gap, uh, squares everything up. And then the end of the year, we saw him starting to elevate some uh, balls on the inside for home runs. You know, the concern with Evan White was never if he could hit. You just watch him hit, you know, hard liner to right field, hard liner to left, you know, shot back up the middle. You know he can hit. He just wasn't really lifting enough for home runs. Uh, but at the end of the year, he he made an adjustment started turning on those inside fastballs and pulling them down the left field line. The power is there. So this was a very, very good prospect. Um, I kind of envision him in that hitting 280 with, you know, maybe a little shy of 20 home runs, 15 to 18 with, you know, gold glove level defense. Um, you know, a guy who doesn't hit, you know, 25, 30 home runs as a first baseman is sometimes seen as being below average for first base, but with the amount of contact he makes and the defense he plays, and he's also pretty fast. He can swipe you some bags. I think the total package would have been a, a really solid everyday player. Um, Kyle Lewis, you know, people worried about he had that horrific knee injury that cost him, you know, most of a year and has been a lot of stops and starts. People were concerned about the defense and his ability to run coming back. And he's lost some first step quickness, but He's actually still pretty good out in the outfield. Um, the concern has been at the plate. That level of explosiveness in his lower half has not been there. But, again, it's been a lot of stops and starts. I think this coming year will be really telling. We'll see if we really see the real Kyle Lewis. And Julio Rodriguez is kind of the guy you can dream on. Uh, he has yet to play a single game in the United States. A lot of money as a, as a Dominican signee. Um, you hear just raves about him. But obviously, coming to the U.S., getting acclimated, it's a whole new level of uh, of baseball and challenges, both culturally and baseball-wise. So I think at the end of the day, there are a lot of people who think Julio Rodriguez could be the best of all three of these guys. But he's you know 18 years old. He's yet to you know play not even full season ball, just you know complex level ball in the U.S. So he's he's five six years away. It's he's a long term project. Yeah. I, I- Going back to Evan White, it's striking how good of an athlete he is, like how fast he is. He just moves like a he moves like a, a shortstop or a center fielder when he does stuff. Just you know, like you you remember seeing those guys that the way they just move, they just look athletic. Everything they do looks easy and just very graceful. That's what he's like in everything he does. It's it's really I mean it's striking when he was out. I, I remember he was doing work with the big league club and Kyle Seeger looked at me he's goes, and he said, that's the best defensive first baseman I've ever seen. He's yep. just like, it was just stunning to watch him. Yeah, you're right. And again, that's why I, you know, I, I kind of joke, but it's true. You talk about the grace it's live, it's quick. It, it's almost like performance art. Um, it's just, again, it's, it's really something special to watch. And then because of that, you know, there have been some evaluators who say, you know, you saw what the Dodgers did with Cody Bellinger this year. Yes, he was their primary first baseman, but he also was their primary center fielder in terms of games played. Uh, you saw him play a little bit of right as well. There's a lot of evaluators out there who think that Evan White can fill that same kind of role. Now, he hasn't done it yet, but, uh, you know, whether it's, hey, go play 
two games at first base. Oh, then, hey, go play center today, come back to first, and go to right the next day. Every evaluator I've talked to believes he can do it. And, and like you said, with how striking an athlete he is, the speed he has, the, the agility he has, there's not much doubt in my mind that he could probably pull it off either. You think, uh, I know the Mariners, the reasons why they don't play instructs anymore, instruct games, but for somebody like Julio Rodriguez, who was at their instructional camp and everything like that, you think that hurts them? I mean, I know they play the games in the Dominican, but you can't play until you're 17, and a lot of those guys just need games, like organized, real games. You know, this isn't like a high school kid playing select from, you know, here goes to the area codes and everything else. You think that hurts the Mariners at all by not playing instructs? So this is the debate happening inside baseball. <laughs> um, I think that I think it does put him at a slight disadvantage in Julio, a situation like Julio Rodriguez, uh, just because you know getting out here to the states, seeing the level of competition here, um, it is a step up from the DSL. I think the earlier you're exposed to that and get reps with that, it can you know help accelerate your development a little bit. You know, I think scrapping instructs for the guys who have been in full season ball, they've played 140 regular season games, plus, you know, the 20 or so minor league spring training games, you know, the extra 15, 20 instructs games, you know, I don't know how much benefit there is to that. But I think having no instructs at all so that guys like Julio Rodriguez or other prospects who are either hurt and didn't get a lot of game reps, I think that is a disadvantage. And, and even though we've seen teams move away from instructs uh, beyond just the Mariners, the vast majority of them still do take part in instructs. And I, I do think it would have been helpful to expose Rodriguez and some of these other international players to that environment. Okay, we'll get to the trades now. Look, the Mariners have made uh, five trades since the uh, since the since uh, their little step-back plan has gone into effect. They, you know, in terms of prospects, they, they've landed a f- more than a handful. Um any thoughts when you when you when you started watching the Mariners trade off piece by piece, you obviously knew uh, that the prospects were going to be coming back. Any thoughts initially on some of the trades that you've seen? Yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, getting out from Robinson Cano's contract, and not just getting out from the contract, but only paying twenty million of it, uh, and then obviously capitalizing. You know, Edwin Diaz is a, is an incredible talent, but um, you know, you can debate the merits of, of having a closer on a you know, third place team. Um, I think that that was, that was a very nice move. You know, again, you, you clear out some money, even taking on the contracts of Bruce and Swarzak. And then you add both, you know, the high ceiling, lower level guy and Kellenic and the pitcher who can probably help you next year and done. I mean, you know, the bit, one of the biggest things that's hampered the Mariners is when they've needed to, you know, dig down and get some arms they haven't been there. We see every year teams, you know, the Brewers this year were able to go down and get Brandon Woodruff and Freddie Peralta, ex-Mariner, um, and Corbin Burns from their system. You know, the Dodgers were able to go down and get Walker Bueller and Caleb Ferguson for the bullpen. You know, the Mariners just haven't had the ability to do that, and that's hurt them in their pursuit of the postseason for a few years now. I think getting a guy like a Justin Dunn who, look, it's probably going to be, you know, pie-in-the-sky number three starter, but – probably more of a number four or you know he closed in college and could be that high leverage reliever but getting a guy like that who you can potentially see in the majors next year in addition to that high ceiling guy in Kellenic down below I think that's a nice mix I think the Mariners did a good job there um, James Paxton I thought the return was a little bit light just because you know you look at Jose Quintana and he got you know Eloy Jimenez and Dylan Cease two top 100 prospects 
Um, Paxton's health is obviously uh, a little bit of a concern here, but it was a little light, but at the same time, Justice Sheffield will help. Uh, I think Eric Swanson will help in some capacity, probably won't be in a standout form, but helps a little bit. Um, you know, the Gene Segura trade is probably the one I question the most just because JP Crawford, um, the one thing he was supposed to do was provide reliable defense and he didn't do that in a big way. There's a lot of red flags there and Carlos Santana is, is kind of approaching the end here. So again, I think I, I would, you know, like most teams making deals, I think you could say this one was really good. This other one was just kind of okay. And this other one was head scratching a little bit, but when you take them all together, you know, the Mariners have gotten younger. They've added a lot of talent. That's either, you know, upper level of the minors or, you know, in the case of a guy like Crawford, you know, just at the major league level and still young. So you can see what they did. They had a plan, and I do think on the whole they've executed it fairly well. All right, who's of the group of players? Uh, you can even throw in, you know, all who is the best player or the best prospect they got back. You know, in your mind. I mean, you don't have to go by rankings or whatever. But who do you think was the most important piece that they've gotten back so far in these deals? Justice Sheffield. Uh, to me, that's you know a, a lefty who just had a really good year in AAA. It's up to 97 from the left side. We'll show you two quality secondaries. Like every young pitcher, there's some things to iron out. You know, some fastball command here, some pitch selection there. But uh, this is this is a special arm and someone who's performed everywhere he's been. And I think that at the end of the day, you know, we've talked about the Mariners and, and their troubles getting starting pitching and creating some starting pitching depth, uh, especially as some of their other pitchers start to age out a little bit, Felix Hernandez, Mike Leake, et cetera. Uh, Justice Sheffield was very, very important for them to get back a, you know, a quality big league ready pitcher with real stuff. And the fact he's left-handed and young just adds to it. Are you concerned at all? I mean, there was some inefficiency within the strike zone this year at times, but you know, I've had, I had a couple of scouts talking to me about that, but uh, you think that that can be ironed out? I mean, you know, that pitchers also go through that from time to time as they're adjusting from the AAA to the big league level, just the, the belief in their stuff and being efficient in the zone because, you know, I think some guys get worried about getting drilled. But do you think that'll be a, be something he can overcome? Absolutely. At the end of the day, you're banking on the talent and you see a lot of it. Again, every single prospect has holes you can pick on. And, and, and don't get me wrong, there's absolutely things he needs to work on. That's one of them, and some of that's related to command in the zone. Even when he's trying to, you know, pitch to a certain spot, the command isn't pristine yet. But again, you take that arm, that age, that stuff, that pedigree every day of the week, and you and you know, you can make the tweaks to help him get there. And some of it, it's just going to come from reps. Uh, we see pitchers come up, and you know, except for the rarest cases, you know, pitchers take a little longer to acclimate in the majors than hitters do. Um, but at the end of the day, I, I do expect Justice Sheffield to be a important anchor of the Mariners rotation. The Mariners weren't going to do the deal with the Mets unless they got Kellenick in the deal. That was that was the main piece. I mean Justin Dunn is a big piece, but Kellenick was the guy they wanted a guy, you know, you know, he's he's not quite maybe, you know, he's only nineteen, so there's a, a ways to go, but the overall talent you know, and talking with their guys, I mean, Kellenick was a guy they really wanted. They didn't believe he would get to, they would get to him in the draft at 14, but they scouted him hard in hopes that maybe he would somehow get there. Uh, and then they didn't, but I mean, you know, in talking with a lot of people, the upside on this kid and the potential on this kid seems to be extremely high. 
Absolutely. He was the top ranked high school position player uh, we had on our Baseball America, you know, pre-draft rankings. He was the top uh, top high school position player to go in the draft. And look, this is someone that if everything clicks, you know, we talk about a plus hitter. What does that mean? That means 280 to 300, if not more. Uh, there's there's real power in there, whether that's 20 or 25 home runs. And then there's some real athleticism in there, too. Uh, you know, he's not like a crazy burner or you know, a ridiculous center fielder, but he can run plenty well. He can play center field pretty well. So if everything clicks, you're looking at, you know, 280 to 300, 20, 25 home runs, everyday center fielder. Again, that's someone you can build your lineup around. Now, you mentioned he's he's a teenager. Uh, he was old for his draft class, which is generally a red flag. And, you know, cold weather high school bats, uh, he's from Wisconsin, don't have the best track record either. So it's not like he's, you know, was 17 or 18 coming from Southern California and dominated everyone he ever played. So there, there's not, you know, there's no such thing as a surefire prospect. And there are some, you know, concerns with him that make him, you know, not exactly, you know, a cinch. But at the end of the day, as you mentioned, uh, that the talent is prodigious and, and the Mariners were absolutely right to have this deal hand John Kellenick and not pull the trigger if he wasn't in it. If you look at last year's rankings, uh, the Mariners didn't, they had, I think one guy in the top 100, they've added some guys that are in the top 100 that were in last year's top 100. I mean, in terms of, obviously you don't know the organizational rankings right now, but they obviously won't be last. How much do you think they've elevated themselves in, in that regard and adding all this talent? Yeah. Um, so this will obviously change as, as more trades come down and more systems get shaken up a little bit as, uh, prospects get moved for veterans here, especially at the winter meetings. But I think it's safe to say they're they're now in that middle tier. Um, you know, they're no longer in that 20 to 30 range. I think they're in the 11 to 20 range. It might be a little closer to 20 than 11. But uh, you mentioned, you know, adding Sheffield and Kalanick, who were in our most recent top 100. Uh, Evan White, I, I think, has a very strong chance to be in our top 100 when uh, when our rankings break next spring. So. You know, potentially three top 100 guys, uh, guys like Rodriguez, you know, Dunn has been in it before. Rodriguez has a chance to grow into that. So, you know, they start talking about, you know, three top 100 guys in a system plus two or three others with the potential to maybe be that as well. That's a really solid system. Um, there's still a shortage of depth. You know, once you get into the the depth pieces, they pale in comparison still with a lot of other organizations. But that's going to take time. And at the end of the day, it's the guys at the top that make the biggest impacts and matter the most. And on that front, the Mariners have done fairly well for themselves. The uh, the you guys wrote a yeah, you guys had a, a piece on um, on the players that Jerry Depoto had traded away. The top ten prospects. Yep, yeah, that one. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, obviously that was something I considered. But yeah, of that grouping, and I know you ranked them. Who is the best? Like, who will be the most costly to uh, trade away? I mean, for people that don't know, Freddie Peralta, Eniel De Los Santos, Pablo Lopez, Nick Neidert, a lot of a lot of younger arms that were were really young when he traded them have started to kind of rise up and develop right now. Yeah, I mean, I, I think when all is said and done, Neidert might end up being the best one, um, just in the sense, you know, you look at Peralta and. You know, it's 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 not like ridiculous stuff, you know, just as Freddie Peralta is not touching 96, 97. But, you know, it's a clean arm action that hitters don't pick up. Secondaries work. Neidert has a lot of the same stuff and much, much better control. Um, 
again, I, I both Peralta and Nidert have been on our top 100 with their new organizations. I, I think at the end of the day, if I had to handicap it, it might end up being Nidert, but but Peralta right now is the leader and thus was number one on that list. And you know, those are just the pitchers. I, I still think Tyler Mc, Tyler O'Neill with some of the swing changes he's made to get you know a little more leveled out. Obviously, there's still some swing and miss there, but. I mean, he's got the potential to lead the National League in home runs someday. And that that will hurt if the Mariners are looking and seeing, you know, Freddie Peralta's pitching, you know, for the Brewers in the postseason. Tyler O'Neill's chasing a home run title. And Nick Neidert is part of the Marlins, you know, redux in 2021. That's going to hurt a little bit. And I think all those are plausible scenarios. Uh you look at you look at all these young guys that they've gotten now, and you've got some prospects. You've got some younger guys, got some guys bounce back. Even somebody like the, the Fraley kid who kind of had a bounce back year, and it, at, you know, being older for a level, um, you've got guys kind of. How important is it though? The Mariners don't necessarily have the best best reputation in terms of player development and and helping bridge that gap between the minor leagues and from the minor league success to finding major league success. How important right now is it for the Mariners to make sure that the development of these guys that that they are you know you have some talented guys that they develop to get to this window that Jerry Depoto hopes is twenty twenty one twenty twenty two. I'd say that's the singular most important thing they can do as a franchise right now. If you're going to invest in this route, you know, just trading for talent isn't enough. As much as we talk about, oh, this prospect and this prospect, none of them are ready to play in the major leagues right now. It's going to take good coaching, good development, the right instructors connecting with them, helping them create, you know, solid, effective plans at the plate or on the mound. Uh, you have to have that infrastructure. And, and now I think that's going to be the next step for the Mariners to ensure you know, Andy McKay running the farm system to ensure that they have the right people in place to help these kids get to that next level. Because a lot of times we look at, you know, certain prospects who don't make and say, oh, they busted. And there are times it absolutely is on the player. But uh, more than I, I knew, I realized before I started doing this job, I see teams that just screw players up and don't know what to do with them and then discard them. And it's kind of, you know, kind of a sad story. And, and I think at the end of the day, that has ruined a lot of promising careers more than people realize. So if you're the Mariners right now, you have to invest in this heavily to ensure that, you know, these guys are brought up the, the way they need to be brought up. You think JP Crawford can bounce back coming to a situation where one, you don't have any, you know, the Phillies, even last year, we're still trying to kind of win and, and go for it a little bit. Uh, and, you know, there is the pressure of playing in Philly. It's not, you know, it can be a little bit of a tough town. You come to a Mariner situation where they're obviously not trying to win 100 games this year. They're trying to just kind of piece some things together. You can just go out there and play, you know, a little bit and maybe not rely on the results. They also brought in Perry Hill, uh, the old Marlins first base coach, an infield coach who has been kind of a guru in, with infielders in terms of, you know, improving their defense. It worked, you know, he worked with a lot of guys down there, Echeverria, D. Gordon, all these guys. You think that, I mean, you think J.P. Crawford can kind of get back? I mean, at one point, he was your guys' number six overall prospect in all of baseball. Yeah, uh, so I might be the wrong person to ask about that because he was ranked that high before I took this job, and I've probably been the low guy person on J.P. Crawford mm -hmm. for a long time. Um, look, I, there's no question that being able to just go out and work through your mistakes and know that, hey, if I have an 0 for 4 day with three punch outs, I'm not going to be on the bench tomorrow. Yeah, that's that. There's no question. That's definitely a benefit to to all young players. At the same time, you know, 
JP Crawford has, it, it's a light bat. He did not hit in triple a, um, he does not cover the outer half of the plate. Again, with J.P. Crawford, just me personally speaking here, my expectation has always been, you know, good glove, you know, high on base, hit him number eight. You know, it's an everyday shortstop. I don't know if that's a franchise cornerstone, but, you know, an everyday shortstop with reliable defense who gets on base on the left side, like that's a valuable commodity to have and, and certainly a good player. I just don't know if Mariners fans should expect him to blossom into, you know, Gene Segura hitting 300 double-digit bombs, you know, yeah. year in, year out, becoming an all-star. I've had different scouts say that he's regressed into being a, a utility guy and, and this and that. And then, you know, guys talked about his swing getting a little too long this year and, and really just just going away from what had had success at the lower levels. But it is something to kind of keep an eye on. You know, I, I know DePoto follows that kind of path of, of – I think it was John Hart who said anytime that there are players out there, you know, that have been waived or, or, you know, gotten rid of that are, are, you know, low on people's priority list, but they had the one next to them when it came to the round they were taken and you got to take a look. Cause obviously they were talented enough to be taken that high, but it, it'll be curious to see how he handles this. You know, I, I was looking at the we Larry Stone and I discussed this. That there wasn't a great market for Gene Segura at this point because so many teams already have a, the established teams that are going for it have shortstops. You know, the the Phillies were one that needed one. The Brewers could use a middle infielder, but he Segura and the Brewers probably not going to have a reunion after the way it ended the first time. Uh, it'll be interesting because that's the one piece, and a lot of people weren't happy with the, the return on the on the Segura trade. Yeah, I think there's an argument to be made that if that was, you know, the best they could have done that, you know, maybe holding out until July when, you know, injuries hit or someone's a little more desperate, um, maybe you could have gotten more. I do understand that argument. But, you know, again, you're right. You know, J.P. Crawford. And again, I don't mean to say he's not not talented. I still think he can be an everyday shortstop. It's just kind of that, you know, high on base, good glove uh, more than than impact bat. And, you know, if you're if you're shedding salary and that's important uh, for the Mariners to do, then, you know, make the move and get get a 23, 24 year old who you think still has some potential. That's certainly not the worst thing to do in the world. All right. Well, I'm going to let you go because we're recording this on Wednesday afternoon, about 230 Pacific. Kyle's on the East Coast and the Cardinals just traded for Paul Goldschmidt. So. He's going to have to do some work because there's a lot of prospects going back to the Diamondbacks and a lot of stuff going on. So I'll let you go. But I appreciate you coming on, man, and, and giving some insight on all of this. When do you guys when are you guys going to debut uh, the organizational rankings? And then how do you guys do it to readjust the Mariners' top ten? Do you readjust that, or how does that work? Yeah, so we will readjust it, and it will be uh, Mar- the updated Mariners' top ten will be uh, in the Baseball America Prospect Handbook, which goes to press end of December. Buy that uh, book; people- it's really good to have, too. By the way, yeah, I appreciate the plug. Um, yeah, it comes out uh, end of January, so you'll see everything updated in there for the Mariners. You also uh, get the organizational talent rankings in the book as well. That, that's where they will first be. Uh, then they'll hit the web. Uh, once the organization talent rankings will hit the web, latest February, around the time spring training opens. And uh, if there's any additional moves past the uh, handbook deadline, that'll be updated online as well. 
Yeah, I won't be writing about it like I was last year. You know, Jerry Depoto and Andy McKay weren't real happy answering questions about that. But, you know, you are what you are. You know, you can say you like the players better than other ranking systems do, but that doesn't matter. I mean, when it was universal, when it was you guys and, and Fangraphs and, and ESPN and everybody else, it, it kind of wasn't like this wasn't just an anomaly, one person thinking or one, one uh, publication thinking that it was pretty much universal. Yeah, look, and again, I, I think it was interesting. Uh, I think Andy McKay took it personally based on his responses. <laughs> and it was not, and, and I, I, you know, you and I talked about this for an article last year. It was not an indictment of the Mariners, the way they do things. They just, their philosophy at that exact moment in time was, let's, you know, try and compete at the big league level and trading minor leaguers to do that is the way we're going to try to do that. And they did it, and they won 89 games. And again, that's that's not a failure on their part. It's just a reflection of that was their philosophy. And when all was said and done, it was pretty empty. And and you know, of course, they're going to defend their guys, but that was the truth of it. It was very empty. There was not a lot there. Um, you know, and now they've obviously had a change in philosophy, and you know, it's going to change again. Nothing, nothing about this is an indictment of anyone individually. It's just. The talent on the field is the talent on the field. And, uh, you know, the Mariners are sacrificing a little bit at the big league level to beef up the prospects now. And, and that will be reflected uh, in our organizational talent rankings this year, I'm sure. Well, you and I both know that if the Mariners had a, a more commensurate farm system that was that had enough talent at the upper levels, they wouldn't be in this position right now where they're having to take a step back. The problem is is that as these players get older on their big league roster and, and you lose a guy like Cruz, they don't have players that can step in. You know what I mean? Like if you like you mentioned the pitching side, they don't have it from the position player side either. You know, they went out and got Hanniger in a trade. You know, they've gotten a lot of these guys. They don't have that that top prospect when a few years ago, like they did with Adam Jones waiting at AAA, ready to step in and be that guy who they didn't traded. But they don't have those guys in their system. Their upper level of their farm system is very barren. And that's that's how you get to this point when you can't self when you're not self-sufficient in, in replenishing your own talent and you you've got a bloated payroll. You don't have a lot of options, do you? Not at all. And that's we, we saw them trade for four different first basemen with using prospects went Adam Lynn. They went Yonder Alonso. They went Danny Valencia. They went Ryan Healy. I mean, it was a constant because they didn't have anyone they could bring up. It just, you know, became that spiral of we have to trade more prospects and more prospects and more prospects. And I think I added it up. It was something like 21 pitching prospects in three years with some enormous number. And the effects of that, have, you know, have been felt. Um, but like you said, you know, becoming self-sufficient in terms of maintaining a talent pipeline is important and uh, i think it's ultimately this will help them have a stronger foundation so that if someone goes down with an injury or someone hits that age curve a little earlier than expected you know they're not scrambling oh no we don't have anyone we have to go trade some more prospects go get someone i think in the long run this will make for a stronger foundation um, now it's just a matter of developing the players and, and as we talked about, investing in development and, and getting them ready to, to be those guys. All right, man. I'll let you go. Are you going to be at the winter meetings in Vegas? I'm actually not because one of my best friends in the world is uh, getting married in India. Holy and cow. I'm a groomsman. Yeah, so uh, I'm actually going to be uh, in India during the week of the winter meetings, which, again, I hate missing the winter meetings, especially in Vegas and especially when I get to kind of Go uh, go back to the Western U.S., my uh, my home region. But 
for a, a best friend's wedding in a place as cool as India, I, I'm okay missing this one for that reason. Well, next year's meetings are in San Diego, which I know you'll be very happy about. So you can just wait and save up for next year. Absolutely. Absolutely. Appreciate right. it, Ryan. All right. Take it easy, man. Okay. Um, excited to have this next guy on the, on the podcast. Uh, we go back and forth on Twitter a few times. Uh, and you know, really I value guys that, that, that watch, um, you know, evaluate prospects, things like that, because I just, you know, especially outside of the Mariners, I don't have a ton of time yet to be able to do all this and follow up. So I'm looking for people that are well reasoned and smart and do these things in the right way. So Eric Longenhagen of Fangraphs is here joining us. Eric, why don't you introduce yourself and tell you, tell people how you got to where you're at. Uh, howdy, listeners. Uh, yes, I am Eric Longenhagen. I've uh, I live in Tempe, Arizona now. I've, this 2018 was my 10th year in baseball. I've started uh, as a college freshman with the Phillies AAA affiliate in uh, Lehigh Valley, uh, interning there. And over the last 10 years, did uh, Crashburn Alley. Was at Crashburn with uh, Michael Bauman of The Ringer and Bill Bear of NBC Sports, as well as like uh, Corinne Landry, who's with the Phillies now. Um, we were all kind of there at the same time. And then I did, uh, draft coverage with Keith law for ESPN for a while. And now I'm the lead prospect analyst at Fangraphs. Uh, a lot of times people automatically just go to, uh, baseball America or use that as a reference or MLB pipeline. But Fangraphs has, has been really good about prospects. I, I, I know Kyle McDaniel a little bit as well. Uh, just kind of talk about how you guys do your prospect evaluation and come up with your rankings and all that. Sure. We try to uh, make sure that context is considered very heavily um, with everything that we're doing. And even just to keep it in mind as we're going through our process of lining guys up, um, we think is an important thing. And like just being reflective and introspective about uh, the way we go about things to try to improve it constantly we think is is just good for uh the quality of the stuff we're putting out uh and really like the overarching principles of our analysis are about uh like it kind of does boil down into one number that we call future value um each prospect that we write up gets a future value grade that is just sort of like uh it's an approximation. It's like what we think they're going to do uh, on the 2080 scale as it relates to wins above replacement while they're uh, under team control for their first six years, basically. Uh, and it like takes into account risk and uh, player demographics. Like high school catching has a, a, an insanely high bust rate. Like no high school catchers have succeeded for the last 10 years. Um, and so like that sort of stuff kind of all gets baked into this one number, and we try to apply consistent logic across uh, the entire player population. Uh, and fit players into tiers more than uh, hard rank them. We just think that there's enough variability that doing that is more useful and thinking about players uh, heuristically and related to their demographics is ultimately more uh, more accurate than just trying to rank them ordinally, which creates, in our opinion, a false sense of precision. Uh off the top of your head, what where was who was a what was a prospect that you felt your your FB your future value was like pretty spot on, and where was one that maybe you just guys just kind of like wow this didn't kind of pan out the way we thought it was going to. Uh, 
Yeah, there are all sorts of just because we have a thousand players every offseason that we refresh the evaluations on. There's going to be a lot of both. Um, we, you know, Ronald Acuna was very high on uh, my list individually before Kylie came back. Uh, even the year after he was hurt and really hadn't played a whole lot, that was uh, someone who we uh, like. I shuttled up the list pretty quickly, um, and so that's a good one. And then, like, having those him up top last year is, like, that felt good. Um, Otani, too, uh, has been up there. Um, and then, some, you know, some of the guys that I like to hang my hat on are the types that uh, that I see here in Arizona early and then pan out. Some of those guys are still prospects. Like, Jazz Chisholm was a guy who I was on pretty early just seeing him here uh, on the backfields in Arizona. Uh, he has really improved. Uh, Christian Pache with the Braves. That stuff – those are some of like my greatest hits off the top of my head. Uh, I also ranked Yohan Moncada number one overall in all of baseball. Uh, did not scrutinize the bat-to-ball issues there quite enough. Um, don't think he's going to be quite that type of player. Still a two-win guy last year, but probably not the type of player that I thought he was going to be. Uh, this was kind of what I thought the floor was. And then Matt Chapman was not in my top 100. I thought he was going to be – the strikeouts were going to be a huge issue – um, and that he was essentially going to be like peak Pedro Feliz for 10 years, <laughs> uh, like hit 20 bombs and play really good defense, but otherwise kind of leave something to be desired. And he's just, uh, a little better than that across the board and is, you know, obviously a superstar. So those are the two that, uh, caused me to lose sleep a little bit, I guess still with Chapman and Moncada. Okay. Well, let's get to the Mariners a little bit. Um, yeah. What, what, where did you before before trade of Palooza happened um, in this last couple of weeks? Where where did you see the Mariners' uh, farm system at in terms of overall around baseball? I mean, you know, much has been written about where they ranked organizationally in terms of talent, in terms of depth. Where where did you see their 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 farm system at? Uh, at the bottom. We uh, Craig Edwards, who one of my colleagues at Fangraphs, he had been working on. Uh, prospect asset valuations. So those tiers of prospects that I had mentioned before, uh, basically Craig went back and said, okay, well, where do – he applied our uh, system and like the way we tier players to 30 years of Baseball America rankings and basically said, okay, where uh, are players when they're ranked on lists? Uh, how do they pan out and what kind of uh, war value do they generate and how much is that worth monetarily so we can kind of put a dollar value – we can kind of distill everything to a dollar value, which makes it pretty easy to convert and uh, add and subtract. And the Mariners were at the bottom uh, based on our end-of-season evaluations uh, with the farm system valued at $43 million, uh, and the Red Sox were second last at $55 million. Uh, and so, yeah, they were at the very bottom. Uh, most of that comes from uh, the constant purge of talent over the last couple of years as the team has added to the big league club. And a lot of that has been Latin American players, um, players who you, the, the casual, even Mariners fan, uh, doesn't know. Juan Then, um, Alex Vargas, Juan DePaula. You know, Freddie Peralta was that guy at the time when he was traded, just these 17, 18, 19-year-old Latin American players who are either in the Dominican or here in Arizona 
uh, who probably won't be anything, and if they are, probably not for three, four, five years. Uh, and now that's hurt the way the system looks, or it did until this offseason. And yeah, I think that they were pretty comfortably last for us. Uh, just going through, before we get to the new guys they've added, it, it, you know, any thoughts on some of their, their main guys? Um, have you, you know, a lot of people, Julio Rodriguez is like, to me, you know, you, you see the Instagram videos and stuff like that, but you'd, I've mm-hmm. never seen him play. I mean, he's 17 years old. I mean, I know he's in Arizona. He's actually in Seattle. They had leadership meetings or something like that for players. So all the Mariners' top prospects were in Seattle. But uh, any thoughts on Kyle Lewis, Evan White, Julio Rodriguez? Sure. Uh, yeah, Julio Julio has been sort of my guy. Uh, he was a big-time July 2nd guy for me. Um, I don't typically take to the corner only July 2nd uh, signees quite so much as the up-the-middle types just because there's like no margin for error um, on as far as the offensive development goes. And it's hard to know if a 16-year-old is going to hit or not. They've seen a lot of showcase pitching. They take a lot of BP and don't do a whole lot of stuff in games. And uh, just to scout someone's ability to hit is difficult in Latin America. Uh, but Julio, you could clearly see, he's like 6'3", 180. He's probably about 205 now. Um, with feel to hit and feel for lift. And there was already raw power and he was going to come into more of it. And he was physically advanced enough. Uh, that I hoped they'd send him here to Arizona over the summer, and instead they kept him in the DSL, and he absolutely crushed. Um, and yeah, like I've seen the Instagram videos that he's posted too, and you know it's a highlight reel, so it's going to be the best swings the kid has taken, but it's impressive. Uh, and so I'm excited to see him in the spring. The Mariners don't do instructional league in a traditional sense, and so I have not been over to see him lift or whatever you know there's just not much utility in that for me but i'm excited to see him next next year evan white was a 45 future value for us last year uh he'll be a 50 in the offseason i expect he'll be somewhere on our top 100 or in like the periphery you know, we don't do an arbitrary like 100 we try to just rank all the guys who have uh, 50 future value or better uh, so white might be in like that 100 to 130 range but i do think he made substantive swing changes Last year that uh, have enabled him to hit for more power. Uh, that's what scouts were telling me during the summer and uh, confirmed to my eyes in the fall league where he was really terrific. Um, Kyle Lewis I'm down on. Uh, you know, we've kind of been waiting for him to be healthy and play for a sustained amount of time. And when he was at the Futures game in July, it was just clear to me that his physical tools were not on par with the other guys at the event. Um and so he'll kind of hover in that 45, 40-plus 40 future value area for us. We're like, hey, maybe there's still some upside here that's you know, just been masked by all these lost reps, and it'll still come. You know, This is a small school college hitter we're talking about, so there was always going to be a little bit more development for him than was typical uh, for a top 10 or 15 college uh, draftee. Um, but I'm pretty down there. And then Logan Gilbert, who they took in the first round this year out of Stetson, I really like. He was overworked a little bit at Stetson, in my opinion. I think you're going to see his velocity pop back up next year. Uh, he can move quickly as like a three-pitch mid-rotation guy, uh, probably someone who's like an average, maybe slightly better uh, big league starter. And like that's the top of the farm system uh, heading into this offseason. And then you had the upside types beneath that, like Noel B. Marte, who they just signed this uh, July, uh, Sam Carlson, who – 
I really liked in high school, but obviously the Tommy John is has affected his timeline pretty significantly. And everybody beneath that was kind of like a reliever or bench type player. But you know that that's those are the the top names that I that I liked anyway heading into this winter. Were you um, where, where do you fall on this? And I know that there's a debate within the the baseball, but the Mariners not playing. Um, fall instructs games. I, I get some of the reasoning behind it, but guys like Rodriguez that have not really, you know, you only play in the DSL games and, and you know, they, like you mentioned, it's all out of showcase stuff when they're younger. I think games matter to, especially a lot of these young Latin players that are coming over and playing against high level competition where it's consistent, high level competition for their age group, I think matters. And, you know, the Mariners don't do that with instructs anymore. Do you think that hurts them at all or anything like that? You know, it's hard to say. I the team more and more teams are going to this model where they don't play as many games or play games at all uh, during the fall, and it is a more uh, analytically progressive mindset. Like that, those that that trade is typically part of the organizations that are moving this way. And I know some of the people in the baseball industry that are forward thinking. Um, are into less games during the fall, more classroom learning, uh, more strength training, flexibility training, that sort of stuff. Um, and I don't go, you know, like I said before, I don't go to these facilities uh, during the fall where they're not playing games, like because I have games to go to, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I don't know what those organizations are doing. Uh, I do think completely eschewing games is probably not the best. Um, Everyone sort of has their own opinion about what is right. The most nuanced opinions in baseball about this sort of thing are, hey, uh, all these kids learn differently. Some of them are probably entirely kinesthetic learners who need to see game action to apply what you're teaching them uh, and reinforcing what you're teaching them in the classroom on the field uh, shortly after you've taught them it is probably the best for some of these guys and for others it might not matter at all. Um, and so having a diverse array of education uh, during your instructional league is probably what's best, especially if you have a huge group uh, there in the fall where you almost certainly have several different clusters of people who learn differently. Well, and you're dealing with different age ranges too. You know, Rodriguez yeah. is 17, Evan White, Kyle Lewis are 21, 22. They played on Team USA. They played, you know, college. They played select. I mean, it's, it's just a little different. You know, I always kind of felt like lumping everybody in on under one umbrella when you're, when you're thinking about teaching or development isn't smart either because guys are at different levels as they come along. But, you know, I, I get why you're trying to save on arms and, and that kinds of thing. And the Mariners are trying to be far more advanced in their thinking in that way. Right. And they've had trouble. You mentioned the thing about saving arms. Like the Mariners over the last couple of years have just had trouble having enough pitching during extended spring training uh, to like play all of their games. They, they've had some games canceled uh, just because they didn't have enough pitching uh, that was ready to go that day. So, yeah, it is a struggle to try to you know, have enough bodies because you know at some point like uh, there are a lot of in the AZL and the GCL now a lot of uh, major league organizations are fielding a second team Cubs had two AZL teams last year the Giants did uh, the Padres did they're gonna have we're gonna have uh, I think 18 or 20 AZL teams next year even though there are only 15 organizations here in Arizona and the Rockies don't have an AZL team uh, and like there are people in baseball who wonder okay do we are we 
rostering an entire team's worth of players just so another guy can play shortstop every day in the AZL or GCL? Like, is that really what we're trying to do? But you have these other teams casting a really wide net and just hoping that uh, with newer player development techniques – uh, that a broader base of talent can be nurtured into major league value. Um, and I think some of that's going to, has to come from playing games. Cause I think there are some skills that you can only see and identify, uh, through playing baseball games. What, uh, how much of the injury aspect is it with Kyle Lewis? I'm sure you saw him before the injury, some in the, after the injury. I, I, I know I talked to some scouts that feel like the lower half, He's still unsteady on uh, not just in the field, but even at the plate uh, in his swing. That it just it it just doesn't look the same. Like there's a a level of tentativeness there that maybe wasn't existing, and you know that's going to happen when you've dealt with as many knee issues as this guy's had. Yeah, I definitely I saw Lewis a bunch intermittently as it was like he was up and then shut back down and up and shut back down. Uh, and yes, I would agree with those sentiments that. At times here in in Arizona, uh, whether he was rehabbing in the AZL or just walking around the complex in shorts and a t-shirt, like, yeah, there were times when uh, his gait appeared compromised or he was clearly uh, running gingerly uh, and that type of stuff. Like, and you worry that uh, you're watching that stuff a little too closely and are maybe making more inferences than you should be with that sort of thing. But yes, in my opinion... Uh, that that is what has been going on. Uh, I did not see enough of him in 2018 to say, yeah, there's clearly something still wrong with the knee. Uh, and I'd like to think that the Mariners wouldn't have run him out there if that were the case, although it might have gotten to a point where they're just like, hey, you kind of need to play through this at this point, uh, and hopefully it goes away. But uh, it's not a great situation, and you know, it's really just bad luck because uh, he did look like – like it's rare for someone with those physical tools to even get to college, let alone perform like he did. Um, you know, it's like George Springer type stuff. Like when George Springer was at UConn, you could see the power and the speed, uh, and he couldn't hit. <laughs> and he, you knew it was going to take some fixing. And that's kind of where Kyle Lewis was in college, where you're like, okay, this is going to take some tweaking, but if it all comes, the upside is massive, uh, and it just hasn't. So, and now the physical tools seem to be diluted a little bit, and. It's not a great situation, but you know that stuff was in there at one point, so it might be again. It's just a matter of uh, him, you know, it's just stuff that we don't know about him that might be affecting the way he looks. How good is Evan White on defense? I mean, we talked. He's really good. It's 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 pretty amazing. I yeah. I I tell people this all the time, but that was one of my favorite aspects last year is that Scott Service liked watching him play defense, and that Healy was hurt at times last year, so they gave Evan Lewis or Evan White a lot of time uh in Cactus league games and big league workouts and it was it was really just amazing to watch him work every day yeah when he was in college and people saw the profile and it's a weird profile because he's a backwards guy he's like uh like ryan ludwick and ricky henderson uh, he throws right hand uh, or left-handed and bats right-handed and so you're pretty limited uh because now you're you hit from the wrong side of the plate because most of the pitching is right-handed uh, but because you throw left-handed, you're limited to first base and the outfield. So now you really have to hit a ton to profile. Um, and so there were people that thought, based on White's athleticism and his straight-line speed, like, hey, let's move this guy to center field because the bat has a better chance of profiling at center field. But he's so good at first base, to me, that that's insane. 
uh, like having a plus plus defensive first baseman who's going to handle the ball as much as uh, he does, I think is really valuable. I think Mariners fans will see that with Carlos Santana a bunch next year where it's just like, yeah, like let's let this guy handle the ball as much as possible, please. Um, and so, yeah, White is really good over there. Uh, Cody Bellinger is like the same exact sort of thing where it's like, yeah, this guy can play center field, but he's so good over there at first base that I'd just rather have him there. Um, and yeah, the, the contact ability has always been there. It's just about tapping into more power. They've given him that modern, like lead with your heel flex front leg. Uh, let's try to launch this baseball with our entire body type swing. And he's athletic enough that he's maintained it without sacrificing a lot of the contact ability. And, you know, I think he's going to be just a, a really solid everyday first baseman and that he'll probably be ready in the next like two years or so, I think fits with their competitive timeline. Yeah, I think that's what they're hoping anyways is that he he just stays on on track and then you know you look at him as your 2020 guy uh, eventually. Yeah. Okay, so um Jerry Depoto made hell for me and a lot of other writers, which he's done before, but this is a different level. Um five trades, I think a serious amount of prospects coming back. Um as a whole how much has he helped their organizational depth in terms of uh, prospects, farm system, all that kind of stuff? Uh, yeah. So again, using our asset value rankings based on where we have like Sheffield and Kelnick and Justin Dunn and Eric Swanson and all those guys uh, evaluated, they have moved from clearly the bottom uh, to somewhere just shy of the middle. Um it's uh, and JP Crawford is not prospect eligible anymore because he's exhausted his rookie eligibility, uh, but he's still basically a prospect, so he doesn't count as far as this math is concerned. But he sh- he should if you're talking about the talent they added, obviously. Um, and yeah, like I like the guys that they've gotten. It obviously has come at a cost of a bunch of quality big leaders. Uh, and the timeline of the players they've acquired would seem to fit with what they have said as their stated goal, which is to run this thing back in like 2020, 2021, uh, and try to dive back into the competitive side of the spectrum. And, uh, you know, as far as the individuals involved go, Justice Sheffield, I think we're a little bit lower on than other public outlets might be, um, We really like Sheffield, but I don't think – the player that everyone saw in the Fall League two years ago is not who he really is. Um, He was incredible here for six weeks. Like the command has always been an issue for him, but for those six weeks it was not. And he was doing everything, like throwing both of his breaking balls for strikes. Uh, The changeup had really developed. It's like that power upper 80s changeup that has a lot of movement and still – uh, misses bats even though it's there's not a whole lot of velocity separation off of the fastball. It's kind of like that Felix Hernandez style of changeup. Uh, and he just looked really, really good here for six weeks. But he's always had command issues. Uh, the movement profile of his fastball is more of like a sinker. Um, uh, it's not a bat-missing fastball despite the fact that it's like a mid-90s left-handed fastball. Um, so he's probably not going to be like this strikeout machine um, and we kind of think he's an, an average big league starter, maybe slightly above. Uh, and then like Justin Dunn, his changeup came late in the year. He closed in college at uh, Boston College until late in his junior year. So he might just be scratching the surface of some stuff, even though he's in his early 20s. Um, and the, his changeup development late last year is indicative of that. And so he's another guy with four pitches. They're all average or better. 
His breaking ball command is very good. He's going to get the most out of locating those curveballs and sliders just off the plate away from uh, righties. And so both those guys, I think, are good mid-rotation starters who, who are going to be ready in the next couple years. Uh, Kelnick, uh, it's center field probably. He's pretty thick for a 19-year-old. Uh, but even if he has to move to a corner, he might hit enough that like it doesn't matter. Um, he hit throughout his entire high school career. And it was hard to scout him during the spring because he played high school ball in Wisconsin. And like he didn't actually play high school baseball. Uh, he played like Legion travel ball basically because they don't start high school ball in Wisconsin until like May. So with the draft in June, like, I went to see him in Waukesha – uh, play for like this travel ball team on the weekend. And um, so that was kind of weird. But uh, but yeah, he can really hit and play center field. And I don't think there's a ton of upside there unless he becomes like a plus-plus hitter or something like that. Uh, but he's he's pretty advanced for a, a kid who was just drafted out of high school and he might move quickly too. And then the two weird ones of this group, like uh, Gerson Bautista is like whatever, he's a reliever. Um, but the two bizarre ones are Eric Swanson and Dominic Thompson-Williams uh, Swanson might have some qualities that are measurable via TrackMan that make him more effective than his stuff appears to your naked eye. Um, we, our theory is that it has to do with fastball plane um, and spin efficiency, and that this guy might be particularly good at those two things. Where like his fastball has pure backspin and lives in like the top part of the strike zone. So even though it's in the low 90s, it's still going to sneak past. Uh, hitters and then his secondaries are average so we kind of think it's like a back-end starter type but maybe he's kind of weird in a way we don't fully understand and there might be something more than that there Uh, and then dom thompson williams when the paxton trade went down and kylie and i started making calls on thompson williams just to kind of refine what we thought of him the tool grades are like all over the place there are people who think that he's a plus runner with plus plus power and that he might explode. Um, and then, but like generally, people think, eh, it's probably a bench outfielder. So uh, who knows with that guy? It seems it's just like a, an older athletic flyer. Um, and so all these guys collectively, I think, move the farm system uh, up pretty substantially. You know, I know there's been talk from the Mariners uh, that hey, once we're once all of this is said and done, we think we're going to have a top, I forget what they said, farm system. Um, and like the math to get there uh, is pretty extreme. Like the gap between where I think they are now, which is probably just shy of the median as far as farm systems go, and where they'd have to be to be like a top five system is still like another $200 million worth of prospects, which is like adding one of the top. 30 prospects in baseball plus another couple pieces uh and unless they move Hanniger, i don't see that happening uh so so yeah it's much better now than it was uh and some of these guys like Bobby Marte and Julio Rodriguez could continue to like skyrocket up lists because they're teenagers with a lot of physical ability uh, and once the technical aspect of their game starts to develop then who knows um but it's better now uh, I know it's painful and that it, you could argue whether or not it has been worth it, but I do think much more of the system now than I did like three weeks ago. Where are you at on J.P. Crawford? That's hard. Uh, <laughs> I've watched Crawford a lot uh, since he was dra- drafted, and it's been an interesting ride. Uh, he 
he is graceful and athletic in a very specific way, uh, but he is not explosive. So he's like a below average runner, but will make these beautiful acrobatic defensive plays and then also struggle to get to some balls that you think an above average to plus shortstop should get to up the middle or in the hole. Uh, and then he'll boot some easy plays. And so the evaluations of his defense are kind of all over the place because you can see that there's this flair uh, and that he can do some uncommon things. And then he also makes some easy mistakes. Uh, and then offensively, like the Phillies monkeyed with his footwork in the box a lot. Uh, early in his career, he was kind of a bucket strider. Like he'd, when he'd swing – that front foot would really bail out uh, toward the first base side. And he had a lot of trouble doing anything with pitches on the outer half. Uh, the most he could do was kind of slice them the opposite way. It kind of looked like what Eddie Rosario's swing looks like, uh, if you can picture that in your mind's eye. But um, he was patient, and he could drop the bat head and uh, golf pitches down and in, out. And so it seemed like, okay, maybe this is a high OBP shortstop with some situational power and plays a plus defensive shortstop, and so that's like a really good player. Uh, and he's just sort of plateaued and hasn't really gotten any better for the last couple years, and the Phillies can never quite find footwork that worked for him in the box. And so I think the change of scenery is going to be good. Uh, I think the upside is this is an above-average everyday player. I think you have to believe the Mariners think that that's what he is to uh, think the Segura trade was even in any way. You have to either think that or that uh, Segura's market was nothing, um, which I suppose is also possible. But Yeah, uh, I think it was a bit of both on that, but yeah, you're right. Yeah, but, uh, but yeah, the industry consensus on J.P. Crawford is that there isn't one, and some people think it's like a low-end everyday player that they think will be very frustrating, and, and others kind of think it's uh, an above-average shortstop with a chance to to be like a leadoff hitter. It's sort of the range of potential outcomes. Uh, it's interesting to see what they've done. Um, where are you at? I, I, you know, I know it's hard to sit there and say, well, they do this right or they don't. But I, if you're going to, when you're doing this and, and you're bringing in all these younger guys that are on the cusp, I, I think your player development system is is really put into focus. How do you help bridge the gap from AAA to the big leagues or from the minor leagues to the big leagues and find success? Uh, there have been complaints in past years that the Mariners weren't very good at doing that, that, that guys that had a lot of talent just could never – assimilate to major league baseball and could never make the adjustments and sometimes you know through the mariners fault they rush these guys where are you at with the mariners development system and and are they doing the right things right now to push these guys up uh i struggle with seattle player dev specifically um things were definitely really bad under the previous regime uh, there's a reason that uh, Alex Jackson and Luis Gohara were sort of exiled as soon as this regime got there. And their issues from a uh, work standpoint were emblematic of a lot of the issues throughout the system. Like scouts would basically go to Mariners camp and there would be a lot of standing around. And there were a lot of bodies that had gotten a lot heavier very quickly uh, in Peoria when scouts were there to see them and update their thoughts. Um, and more recently, I guess what, like under Andy McKay, uh, 
it has been hard to evaluate their ability to develop because so much of the talent has been sent packing in trades. I don't necessarily agree with the notion that they've had talent that hasn't developed. Uh, like I've never been like a big Dan Vogelbach guy. Like this is just kind of what Vogelbach yeah. is for me. Like that sort of thing. Um, so I do think it's hard. And it has been difficult, as I said before, for me to really get a grasp on what they're doing because so much of it is happening behind closed doors. Uh, with other teams, I can clearly see, okay, Cleveland has, you know, they're doing this weighted ball stuff over there. It's in, it's in my view. Uh, and so I have fully, like more full-fledged opinions about other orgs player dev than I do Seattle's. Um, but it does seem kind of frustrating. And obviously with like the Lorena Martin situation and everything, uh, it's clearly a volatile aspect of the organization. Um, and so, yeah, I do have some concerns on that end, but I don't, I can't be specifically critical about what they're doing because I just haven't seen so much of it. And it's hard to do uh, results-based analysis on it because they haven't had talent. Oh, no, it's, it's just, it's been a weird thing. And you're right. I think the previous regime, um, you know, you they just, they enabled some of these guys to kind of be, you know, what they wanted to do on the field in terms of, you know, you're going to, I'm going to do this and I'm not going to do this. And, and it was, it wasn't a good setup. Um, and I, you know, you're right on the, on the, the new regime. I don't, you know, they don't play a ton of instruct games. You, you, you don't know what really talent they've had. It's most of it's been moved out. I, you know, I'm curious to see how it all works out. And then also like in their, in their minor league system, they, they put an emphasis on winning games and they have some guys older for their level. And, and it's just, it's a different, it's a different thinking than it's gone, but I guess really through time, you'll see it. I'm, I am curious. Um, I mean, none of these guys that you have remaining Kyle Seeger, I, I guess Hanner, I, Logically to you, what does Mitch Haniger? What should Mitch Haniger bring back if they were gonna they were gonna move him? I think it'd be pretty huge. Uh, I know he's what twenty seven, uh, but he popped up late. You know, I was totally off Haniger. The Diamondbacks demoted him uh, so that like Gabby Guerrero could get regular at bats a level ahead of him. Um, and then he had a swing change and exploded, but it was, he was an old for the level hitter in the Cal league. And so, um, you know, we hopped on late, um, but he certainly looks like a star and he's under team control for what another four seasons, yeah. something like that. Four seasons. So I think he'd, he'd net like more than Paul Goldschmidt just did and, uh, probably more than any of the other guys they've traded to this point have netted its, you know, f- whatever, four years of control of uh, a star. So I think uh, given his athleticism and his build, that he might still be really good when this team is ready to compete again, right? He's still co- a cost-controlled player who will be around uh, at the time that they plan to compete. And then I guess if those plans go awry that they could move him at that point. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's hard to say. I think that the pool of players that they've acquired just recently here is still shallow enough that if they really want to commit to rebuilding, uh, that trading Hanager might be prudent. I don't think the team's going to be good next year. Um, and I think betting on all of the guys you got back to be good 
is probably a mistake. I like to diversify the risk a little bit more than that. And trading Hanniger for another three or four guys who are uh, relevant would be good. But it's also going to be pretty hard for them to find uh, the right fit, right? Because their scope is, seems to be pr- pretty narrow. The prospects that they're getting back are guys who are going to be ready in two to three years. And so let's say a team is interested in Hanniger and has a really good farm system, but a bulk of their talent is in rookie ball. Like that's not a really great fit for the Mariners, you know, if they want to compete in two years. So they've probably limited their scope as far as who fits for them as a trade partner a little bit. And that might make it hard to move somebody like this. Uh, or it may, might make it a mistake to try to move somebody like that and kind of keep yourself in that little box. Um, and that might actually be why some of the returns for the guys they've gotten back feels a little bit light uh, because they are they do seem so fixated on acquiring players who are going to be ready in the next couple of years. Yeah, that, that is a weird situation. I, I feel like if you're going to do it, yeah, 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 you have a window where you're shooting for prospects for, but at the same time, you know, diversify the the – your your return a little bit too and get a younger guy if it's a huge upside guy because you know what the mariners have found out and this is why they're in the situation is not only have they traded away a lot of talent in the younger systems that maybe could be popping right now but they just don't have the depth to replenish they're not self-sustaining enough on any level to help offset when you got guys that are getting older or not producing they just don't have that that's why they have to kind of tear everything down so i i mean i think diversifying your 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 eta of some of these guys is 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 not a bad thing to have either i mean just lumping yourself into your one window i i think would be uh really short-sighted do you know if they scout the lowest levels of the minor leagues? Like, are they scouting the AZL and extended spring training and like instructional league and stuff like that? Because there are a lot of teams that don't, and they might not even know about some of these players who, these types of players that we're talking about. <laughs> uh, yes and no. I mean, they've had a lot of turnover in their scouting department recently, so I don't know what yeah. they're doing. Then again, I've been told that like when Jerry Depoto traded. Uh, some of these guys from their, you know, from the eight or from the DSL, uh, one then some of those guys that he never even really consulted with any of the, um, the guys that working down there or even their international scouting director to, to to see what he really had that he made the decision this is the way we're gonna go and he wasn't really gonna change his mind so it'll mm-hmm. be interesting to see I, I I'm I am very curious to see what these guys have to offer I mean I guess you know you get used to covering winning a little bit and the Mariners were, you know, a competent team and I don't think they're going to be great this year, but at the same time, when you go to spring training, you know, getting to see some of these guys get, get into cactus league games and all that. It's, it's, it's different. It's a different way of, you know, a different level of anticipation that maybe you get when, you know, something new, because I, you know, I've covered Robbie Cano for five years. It's, it's just a different thing now for the Mariners. I, I'm very curious to see how it all plays out. Yeah. I'd imagine there's going to be a whole lot of, focus on stuff like the draft and july 2nd moving forward especially as you mentioned with like a new international director in place that stuff might take a little while to get going uh you've got a new international director and most of the 2019 july 2nd kids have already agreed to deals. so who knows what like the severance with tim kissner uh did to their international class next year i guess they've if they have verbal agreements with kids that those are still going to be honored, but it definitely creates some uncertainty. And yeah, you mentioned the shakeup on the pro side of the scouting staff. And I do know that the way they're restructuring that they will have like uh, coverage at the lowest levels um, next year, but I just wasn't sure if they had had it up 
uh, until this point. It'll be interesting to see what they do with the pro scouting stuff. That that stuff is really changing very rapidly across baseball, and I think this organization wants to be part of that in some way uh, while learning from the teams that have uh, lived on the cutting edge of that, for better or worse, for the last couple of years. Uh, like Houston has has basically fired their entire pro staff and uh, is leaning heavily on video and data. And it sounds like the Mariners are going to have slimmed their their staff down and are going to lean more heavily on that stuff without fully committing to what Houston has – something like what Houston has done. Yeah. Yeah, I've, I've heard it similar. Like they want to uh, be more efficient, and but they still want to have guys on the ground seeing these guys every day. But, yeah, they they want to have – be better in the, that kind of area in terms of looking at prospects through video. I mean, everything's so much more advanced now than it used to be that they can do mm. that. You know, all, all the technology, the track man stuff, they, they really want to use all that to their advantage. And I think that's smart, you know, but it's also, it's also good to, you know, double down and have a guy there just to, to be there to see if it's something simple as, you know, is the guy an ass when he's out on the field or not? You know, I mean, that, that plays a little bit. That can be important if, if the guy puts in work or doesn't. Yeah, I agree. There's still the, – the, the player evaluation pie is now more occupied by things like data and technology. But there is still a lot of room for visual evaluation for a number of different things. And some of it is that subjective type stuff like you mentioned with – uh, makeup or work ethic or whatever uh, vague phrase you want to apply to it. Um, I just don't want scouts to be put in that box exclusively because I do think there's still, you know, uh, mechanically, visually, what kind of athlete, like that sort of stuff is mm-hmm. still important. But, um, but yeah, you're right. It, it definitely is, is changing very quickly as uh, technology is just applied to, you know, Rapsodo and TrackMan and, uh, modus sleeves and edgertronic cameras like it is things are really moving very quickly right now like anything else it's changing at a an exponential rate um, and it's going to start impacting the way the aesthetics of the game uh, like at the big league level is pretty soon I think you know we're only starting to see the, the impact of it now uh, and there's just more of that type of stuff coming and uh, it's really interesting to me to let things sort of evolve naturally, but there's also part of me that uh, will miss the baseball aesthetic from like my childhood. <laughs> you know, yeah. disappointed to see. So it's it's tough. It's tough. And a whole new generation of baseball fans will be into you know the 450 foot dinger and 105 mile an hour fastball. So baseball will be fine. All right, man. Promote your work. What are you guys working on so you can people can go to Fangraphs and click on some stuff? What do you got going sure. on? Sure. Uh, all of our stuff is accessible through Fangraphs.com slash prospects. There you will find our organizational lists this offseason. We'll be wrapping up the NL Central this week. Uh, they are exhaustive. They're about like seven, 8,000 words pop uh, pretty often. Uh, Kylie and I have a podcast that uh, we try to do weekly that you can find on that page as well. And just anything we're writing about trades, the prospects involved in trades, uh, and some of our big picture stuff is also on that page. So just head to fangraphs.com slash prospects or follow us on Twitter at FG underscore prospects, which is like the Fangraphs prospects Twitter account. I'm tweeting video and all sorts of stuff from there. Um, yeah, just click around the, that new page. Sean Dolinar did a wonderful job designing a prospect landing page for us, and 
Uh, we're hoping it's a, a reliable hub that people go to instead of like you mentioned before, like people cite BA and people cite pipeline. Uh, and part of that is because their stuff is easy to pull up very quickly and see the list of guys right in front of you and be able to reference it in articles or whatever. And, uh, that's what we're trying to do with this page. So we hope people enjoy what, uh, when do you have an ETA for the NL, NL or the AL West coming out? <laughs> uh, we try to apply, like we try to do it logically, uh, throughout the off season and be like, okay, whose list is going to change the most. Yes, and we try to push that <laughs> to the back. So you can imagine where the Mariners rank on that. We actually kind of have in our in our shared database, the Mariners list kind of started already because we know it's just going to be better to slowly work on it and add the new guys instead of doing it all at once. But I would anticipate that being one of the last ones we do just because we do anticipate there to be so much change. All right, man. I appreciate you coming on. And we got to do this again soon. I, I learned a lot about this kind of stuff. So I appreciate My it. My pleasure, Ryan. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. All right, man. Take it easy. Okay, that will do it for this Prospect Pop-Up Podcast. It's, it'll never get easier to say. Big thanks to uh, Kyle Glazer and Eric Longenhagen for coming on and, and talking about this kind of stuff. I, I really value their kind of knowledge and input. They, they talk to a lot of people. They see a lot of these guys play. And, and it's I think it's a pretty valuable resource. We'll definitely do this again, maybe uh, mid-season or even around spring training, just kind of get some, some thoughts on on what they're seeing from these guys and what they're hearing. Uh, probably the rankings will come out, I think, in January or late December. I think that's when it came out last year. So just keep your eye on that. Uh, and also just keep your eye out for more trades. I, I don't think that Jerry Depoto's done, um, but we'll see. Um, as, like I said, we'll try and do a podcast later next week in Vegas. Hopefully that, that'll work out or I haven't traded my computer for money. So uh, thanks again for listening. Big thanks to Midnight Salvage Company, the official house band of the X Trainings podcast. As always, if you need to get a hold of me, rdivish at Seattle Times is my email, at Ryan Divish on Twitter or Ryan Divish on Facebook. And yes, I just said my name a lot again. It's really weird doing that. But thanks again for listening. We'll talk to you soon.